Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to the Social Leader Podcast, where we learn to lead with greater social impact. Before we begin today, just a quick reminder that the Social Leader Podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services and sponsored by Thelma's Kitchen, Kansas City's first Donate What You Can restaurant. Uh, the mission of Reconciliation Services is to cultivate a community that's seeking racial and economic reconciliation, to turn Troost Avenue from a dividing line to a gathering place in our city and to reveal the strength of all. You can find out more about Reconciliation Services, our social and therapeutic services, our uh, program, Thelma's Kitchen, as well as our foster grandparents program at rs3101.org. Now, let's jump into the show. It is the ninth episode of the Social Leader Podcast, and I am incredibly honored to have a special guest with us today. Her name is Gwendolyn Grant. She is the CEO and the president of Kansas City's Urban League. We're going to have an amazing conversation about leadership, about learning to lead with greater social impact, about how she became the leader that she is today. We're also gonna dive into some very important issues around the state of black Kansas City and then extrapolate that onto other socioeconomic and uh, you know social factors, particularly focusing on equity in our country during this time of COVID-19. Stay with me and we'll be right back with Gwendolyn Grant of the Urban League. Well, welcome Gwendolyn. It's so wonderful to have you here today on the Social Leader Podcast. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you, Father Justin. It's definitely a pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. Absolutely. We've been longtime friends here in Kansas City, and I've ad admired your work for many years in the community. And if I'm not mistaken, you started as the CEO of Kansas City's Urban League all the way back in 1995. I won't well, tell you how. Is that right? It was a long time. No, than that? no, no, no. I actually started working at the Urban League in 1995. I became CEO in 2001, but I've been there a long time. It's been a well, long time. Your impact is so great. I just had to extrapolate it across all the years <laughs> that you've been there. No, for Thank real. You. I've seen you on so many uh, shows. You're on every important panel that's happening in Kansas City. Your organization publishes something, a, a book, almost every year, although this year is a bit of an exception, as I understand. We'll get back to that, the state of Black Kansas City. And, you know, obviously the Urban League is a historic uh, national civil rights organization with tremendous impact. Uh, and and I think going even uh, further beyond the beginning of the civil rights movement, and perhaps you can illumine some of that in a minute. But before we jump in, you know, this podcast is all about helping us as leaders learn to lead with greater social impact, whether we're in nonprofits or in the for-profit world, wherever we are in life, learning to lead with greater social impact. And so, of course, on this show, we bring on folks like you who can speak not only to the depth of the social issues, but also can teach us about leadership. So the first thing I really want to know, and we've never really had a chance to chop it up and talk about this, is how did you become the leader of the Urban League? How did you know from childhood even that you were destined to be the leader that you are today? Wow, what a question, Father. That whew, takes me back. 
Well, you know, I think one thing I must must say about leadership is that we really have to be tuned into our life experiences and recognizing that we live on purpose and to know what your purpose is or what your calling is. And evidence of that starts to show up early in life. So I grew up during the civil rights movement when, um, you know, in the aftermath of, of Dr. King's assassination, I was, uh, I had the opportunity to visit Washington, D.C., for the closeout of the Poor People's Campaign, the March on Washington that he led, which is one of the, the, the final uh, uh, civil uh, rights activities that he was engaged in. And he left that to go to Memphis to deal with the garbage workers strike, and right. at which point he was assassinated. Well, uh, growing up and watching all of these events unfold on TV, of course, being uh, emotionally, uh, you know, invested and personally invested in the civil rights movement. I had the opportunity to, uh, after his assassination, uh, they planned an event called Solidarity Day to close out the Poor People's March on Washington and to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King. And so there was a, they had caravans coming from all across the country, buses, and and my mom allowed me to go uh, to the the ceremony as a preteen, I don't want to say exactly what age because we don't want anyone trying to guess how old I really am. I will never tell. But um, so um, my mom allowed me to go, and I and basically got on a bus with a bunch of church people. It was a bus that left out out of uh, the Call Valley Bank over in Kansas City, Kansas, and I got on the bus by myself. And the church ladies took care of me and I rode on this bus to Washington, D.C. And I had the opportunity to witness um, not only that celebration, but to walk through the, the campsite where people had left their homes and traveled to Washington, D.C. to make a statement about poverty in America. Because, you know, Dr. King started to begin to focus not only on the racial divide, but on the issue of poverty uh, for all people in, in America at that time. Yeah, that was so a logical step and something actually that you at the building you're still dealing with today and trying yeah. to advance. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, having that experience, um, seeing the sacrifice that people had made and understanding the sacrifice that Dr. King and other civil rights leaders and volunteers had made just to try to make America better, try to make life better for people of color uh, in this country uh, had an overwhelming impact on me as a young child. And so from that point on, I have pretty much invested my life or focused my work and my service on trying to improve the conditions, the social conditions and the economic conditions that impact African-Americans. Yeah, I mean, that one bus trip sounds like it was sort of a seminal moment for you, a real axiomatic moment where your life sort of turned. And it also sounds like your mother was a bold and visionary parent. You know, I, as a preteen, yeah. I, I have three boys who are all teenagers, and I kind of can't imagine putting one of my teenagers, even with church ladies, on a bus and, <laughs> and sending them. Your mom must have been a pretty incredible person. Where where did you grow up and what was what was home like for you and how did that impact your your leadership today and the way that you approach leadership at the Urban League? 
So I grew up here in Kansas City uh, on 20th Street, just off of Indiana. Um, so I actually now live and work not far from, from where I grew up. Um, life in my household, you know, my mom was a single parent. I had two older brothers. And um, the one thing that she was, she was definitely uh, a force in our lives, uh, pressing for us to uh, become well-educated, pressing for us to be socially engaged and to uh, use our time here on this earth to make a difference. She was someone that read a lot, watched the news a lot. She did not complete high school, but she was a very, you know, like self-educated woman. And she uh, instilled those uh, values in her children. So uh, all of us have, have pursued careers that uh, or either through either our work or through our community service have, have you know, made strong efforts to give back uh, to pay our rent for the time we have here on earth. Yeah. I mean, the impact of our childhood, I think we discount sometimes um, the the thoughts and the things that come forward in our life that really shape the work that we do. And as we kind of take a look at the the recent history of your leadership, and, and again, you've been there in one, one way or another as a leader since 1995 at the Urban League, I, I'd love for you to tell some of our listeners who who might not know the importance of the Urban League, what's the mission of uh, particularly Kansas City's Urban League? And then, you know, in this time, there's been a lot of change. What are, you know, maybe two or three of some of the greatest victories that you've been able to uh, lead the Urban League in Kansas City to attaining? Wow, okay, the greatest victories. That's <laughs> hard to, to say. I will just point out that our, our mission is to enable African-Americans and other disadvantaged populations to secure economic self-reliance, parity, power, and civil rights. Um, we do that through um, developing data-driven, research-proven, programs and services to um, help our, you know, people to, um, to achieve economic self-sufficiency. So we operate workforce development programs. We are heavily involved in education. Uh, those are our two primary areas of focus, education and workforce development. And under those umbrellas, there are a number of things that we do. But we, uh, we publish not annually, uh, about every two to three years, we publish the State of Black Kansas City Equality Index. And uh, through that publication, we measure the disparities that exist uh, between Blacks and whites and Hispanics and whites in economics, education, health, social justice, and civic engagement. And we use those data to help to elevate um, the important issues relative to advocacy for uh, improving, for changing policies and practices that um, that continue to um, contribute to uh, the inequities. And uh, we use it to um, inform dialogue to try to bridge the racial divide in Kansas City. And we yeah. think that it's really important to have data uh, to elevate those conversations. You know, I was going to ask this question a little bit later, but let, let's actually get into that because the, the state of black Kansas city, uh, book is actually incredibly important. And, and my opinion, there isn't enough data. There isn't enough data about, uh, people of color 
and the entrepreneurship or um, access to capital issues. You know, we, we hear a lot about lots of different issues in our society. We hear about inequity, but until you you hear family stories, which is sort of how you get that lived experience, and then when you see the data that then extrapolates those family stories out into the the larger framework, it's difficult for folks to understand. Um, the the plight of our neighbors who might even just live a, a few blocks away from us. So um, what I want to ask you is, what is the importance of quality and comprehensive data, particularly in social leadership, not just for you as a nonprofit leader and someone who's trying to bring forward the issues in the Black community in Kansas City in particular, but you know, help us to understand why do we need to slow down and make sure that we look at comprehensive and high quality data in our social leadership, Gwen. Well, one thing, one of the primary reasons is because it's, you know, it's just the facts, right? So when you bring data to substantiate or to, to make it crystal clear, these are the conditions that exist. This is not something that we're bringing from an emotional perspective or from a rhetorical perspective as often uh, that can be a label that is placed on uh, civil rights organizations or social justice champions when we start talking about inequities. We need to bring the data that supports that because then it makes it you know, unequivocally clear that this is the situation that we need to address. So let's take all the personalities out of it, all of that, you know, the distraction, and let's just focus on the facts. The other reason that it's important is you can't, you, you have to know where you've been and understand what the, the conditions are in order to be able to address them. So you can't go out here and, and try to solve um these problems if you don't know, have clarity about what the problems are and what are the contributing factors. So it just makes it extremely important to understand data, it is the reality, and then build programs, build advocacy around the information. Around, yeah, it's amazing to me in this uh, day and age that we live in, where we've got everything from Google Analytics to smart streets, smart cities, you know, Wi-Fi enabled bus stops, you name it, we've got data coming out our ears. But but then again, when you try to dig in um, and get beyond sort of a city level and really get into a zip code level or a neighborhood level, it really begins to break down. And you can find data about all sorts of things in our city from, you know, the, like I said, trans, transit to stoplights. But it's very hard to find uh, data that can really illumine the kinds of situations that the Urban League is trying to do in advancing prosperity and civil rights. Um, I'd like to know, you know, obviously the, the state of black Kansas City, from what I understand at a national level, it's that book isn't going to be published in 2020. It's going to be published in 2021 after the census, right? So what do you, first of all, is that right? Is that the right? Well, we hope that that's correct. Well, we're certainly not publishing this year right. um, and intentionally uh, prior to knowing, you know, about COVID-19, the pandemic, mm -hmm. but certain, certainly because uh, of the 2020 census. Um, but the other driver for us is having the resources, uh, you know, and the capacity to, to publish. So we've been uh, blessed and fortunate to have 
the philanthropic community um, recognize the importance of this work, of this research and this publication to invest in it. So we hope that in 2021, the resources will be there because it will be post the 2020 census and then we can, can put out the study with the updated uh, census information. Um, so what was the other part of your question? Well, no, so, so, what do you, so here's where I really wanted to go. Where, what do you think is going to be different post the census, post 2021, when you get into next year? Because of COVID-19, you know, we, we did a show uh, with Kiana Thomason from the Health Forward Foundation uh, a number of episodes ago where we, we went in really deep about health equity and inequities, particularly among uh, communities of color in, in Kansas City and across the nation. So we've, we've established a baseline for anyone who's been listening for a while about some of those inequities. But when the, when the state of black Kansas City and the, and, and the National Urban League's book comes out on the state of black America, what do you think is going to be different post-COVID-19? Well, you know, I think the, the impact is not, I mean, I'm certain uh, the data will be the devastating because uh, basically we are now in a depressed economy before. I mean, just uh, as we, you know, just were in February prior to the uh, pandemic and the shutdown of the economy, uh, we were in what is called a full employment economy. So the overall unemployment rate was like 5.3 or five. Yeah. I think around 5.3%, the lowest it had been in, 20 some odd years. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but even then the unemployment rate for African-Americans during a full employment economy was still one and a half to two times higher than the unemployment rate of whites in America. So now we are in a depressed economy and we anticipate, well, basically unemployment amongst blacks is now about three times higher the rate mm. is about three times higher than it is. And, and so amongst whites. And so post the 2020 census and post the COVID-19 pandemic, it stands to reason that unemployment amongst African-Americans will be probably three to four times higher than unemployment amongst whites, which is what it was during the Great Recession. So um, the economic impact of this pandemic uh, will be uh, devastating and is devastating already, both from an economic perspective and from a public health, from a healthcare perspective on the African-American community. We are in, in uh, the infection rate and the death rate uh, as a result of COVID-19 is highest amongst African-Americans of any other population uh, group in, in this country. Yeah, it's amazing to actually look at the data at what's happened. I mean, if you think about the Great Depression, we've we've seen numbers that equal the Great Depression or approach the Great Depression. Um, and, and I think the last count that I remember from from just recalling from memory was like 14.7% unemployment. Over 33 million people in the United States right now, we're recording this in, in May 2020, over 33 million people are out of work. But here's the difference, though, that I think is really um, striking. Unlike the Great Depression, where that took place over a period of months, 33 million people are out of work now in five weeks. And like you said, I mean, there, these historic racial and economic disparities in, in the United States are exacerbated by COVID-19, of course. So, so how should we, Gwen, be taking historic racial 
equity and racial disparities into account when we address equal opportunity? Well, that's a good question. So first off, you have to understand how we got here. I mean, still, again, it's about understanding history, because I think oftentimes people operate from uh, the erroneous assumption that somehow all things are equal and uh, we live in a meritocracy and that African-Americans and other minorities have the, 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 the uh, playing field is level. And we are in this situation because, uh, you know, we're maybe we don't work as hard. We need to get more education. We need to do whatever. Well, what the data show is that, number one, we are having to address structural and systemic racism in order to, uh, you know, uh, bridge this divide. And to understand what that means, you have to understand historically the systems were designed to marginalize and isolate basically African-Americans. We have been denied full access to the economic mainstream of this country. So we are so many years behind economically that then you layer on a recession, a depression, a pandemic, and it just creates a deeper, deeper divide and makes it much more difficult for us to achieve economic uh, parody. You so know, one of the greatest, sorry, I would just insert a thought right here and then I, I want to return to the question, but one of the greatest examples, I just want to drive this point home because a lot of people are going to hear what you're saying and maybe not agree because not mm -hmm. everybody's looked at the data, but here's one of the mm -hmm. best analogies I've heard, Gwen. Um, and that is imagine that we're all starting down to play Monopoly at the same time. And you've probably heard this one before. And if you, if you took a classroom and you had had all the white kids in the classroom uh, start Monopoly and everyone has the same rules and then you don't let anyone else uh, in the classroom who are black students or non-white students start playing until four hours later. Then you give everybody the same money, everybody the same rules, everybody the same access to the table. How do you think that that second group who didn't get to start playing Monopoly until four hours later, how are they going to do? Well, the point is they they never catch up, or I think statistically somebody's run the numbers on it. It's like 98.7% or or some astronomical number that, that somebody who actually starts four hours later gets to win the game. So right. I think when people are hearing what you're saying, I don't want them to tune their, their ears out. I don't want them to turn their ears off. I want them to hear this point that you're not saying something about somebody's um, necessarily their moral behavior. When you're talking about structure, you're talking right. about 400 years of American history where uh, men and women of color, particularly the black community, and then we could even add that in later into gender inequality. You look at men versus women. But you're talking about 400 years in the black community where you were not permitted by and large to participate in any of the economic life. And so now that's what you're getting at, that you've got these structural issues. You've got time-bound issues that have to be overcome. So how should we be taking that historical racial disparity into account today? How are you doing that today at the Urban League in Kansas City to address equal opportunity? Well, one thing, just to your point, and thank you, is an excellent uh, analogy to make because it is difficult for people to to really get their arms around it when we use language like structural racism or systemic issues. And it's yeah, hard it sounds to, very academic you know, or something. It's not. Right? It yeah. sounds very academic, right. and you make it you make it very real. So basically, it's just like imagining if you're in a race and everybody has a starting line and you're you know several yards back, 
And in order for you to catch up, you're going to have to run a whole lot faster than everybody else and sustain that, you know, for an extended period of time to catch up. It almost practically defies the laws of physics. So Mm -hmm. what we're wanting to do is while we are we address the immediate needs of, of folks that we're serving is to also figure out how to accelerate the supports. So basically you have to invest more. It's like triage. If you go into an emergency room and you need medical assistance, they're going to triage based on that need. So if I walk in and I have a broken arm and you're walking in at the same time and you're, uh, you're, you're suffering from a heart attack or something, they're going to invest a whole lot more uh, medical attention and resources in trying to save your life than they are in trying to address my fractured arm. And so the same approach has to be given to what we need to be doing in the central city and you know, with the populations that you serve through reconciliation services, the people who need the most help need to be given more resources, not less. So you can't mitigate these issues saying that everybody's going to be treated the same. We're going to allocate resources equally across all of the different, the six councilmatic districts, and we're going to give every community the exact same treatment when everybody's issue is not the same. So what we try to do is look at that and how we serve, how we approach our work and how we approach uh, the advocacy around civil rights, racial justice, and um, you know equity. Yeah, and I know you stood up uh, publicly and supported, you know, Robbie Mackinnon and KCATA for finding, uh, you know, money in the city budget to be able to provide free transit, which is, you know, a great um, uh, leveler for a lot of uh, mm-hmm. folks in the workforce who want to be working but have access issues and other things. Now, look, I, I want to make sure we get to some of the personal side because you and yeah. I could talk forever about structural racism and, and barriers. And look, if you if you want to find out more and you're listening out there, uh, I just put the website on www.ulkc.org, urbanleaguekc.org. Make sure you go check that out. It's, it's a good portal to begin. You can springboard from there to lots of other places. Uh, but again, I'm talking with Gwendolyn Grant. She's my guest, the president and CEO of the Urban League. And Gwen, what I want to get into now is about leadership and really trying to um, help our audience learn to lead and have greater social impact. And and you said something a minute ago about how we're going to model moving forward, how we have to live that out. And so as a leader, how do we model moving from discomfort to comfort in our social leadership? (laughs) Well, I live with that discomfort all the time. (laughs) So, um, Leading a civil rights organization is um, very, um, you create discomfort actually to bring a, you know, you have to almost create discomfort to push for the change that we want to see in policies and practices and the improvements to to bridge the racial divide and the, and, uh, you know, the economic divide. So for me personally, I've had to learn to be comfortable with discomfort. And I've had to learn to know that in order to bring about change, you have to disrupt the status quo. Uh, you know, and, it, and so I often think about um, uh, the quote from you know, Frederick Douglass's quote about, you know, power concedes nothing uh, 
without a demand. It never has and it never will. And so if you're in a civil rights space, uh, you see from my leadership, there's, there's always this push. There's always a, you know, an uncomfortable position to be in because for the most part, while folks, we, I believe, are inherently good people, most people are good people and want to believe that everyone is treated fairly. Uh, it requires pushing in ways that make people uncomfortable. And then what I would say is if you're trying to grow your leadership capacity in, in, in dealing with this is you got to lean into discomfort and you've got to uh, be okay with the fact that um, in order for us to get to the next level, we're all going to have to be um, out of our comfort zones. We're going to have to open up to uh, information that's not always, that doesn't feel good. And we're going to have to be very introspective about how we're showing up as leaders. Um, how do we bring people along, um, you know, requires that extra work. And so it's, it's first, you certainly have to know who you are as right. a person and how you show up and uh, be open, uh, you know, to, to, to change. Yeah, I, I um, talk about often this idea of moving away from charity, moving away from charitable intentions and getting to integrated priorities. And, you know, something that you said that I'd love for you to unpack a little bit. And if you could make it practical for somebody who's not the president and CEO of a civil rights organization, right? Because you're kind of at a bar way up here. Oh, okay. and, right. No, I think you are. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you're so comfortable with the uncomfortable that you are able to unpack the uncomfortable with a sort of uh, power that that you know gives a lot of air of confidence. But I really want to, if we're going to make a sea change in some of the issues that you focus on, we've got to have a tipping point of leaders who, like you said, lean into the discomfort. So think about that middle manager. Think about that hiring manager. Think about that person who's not leading a nonprofit civil rights organization. What are maybe two or three tips that you would give them about how to lean into discomfort in their life to have greater social impact? Ooh, so that's a really tough question, Father, because it, it um, you know, certainly is different for, for everyone. I think at first I would go back to uh, getting comfortable with who you are, mm. because if you are someone who, if you have a very high need to be liked, to be accepted, then there's always going to be some degree or higher degree of risk when you begin to think about what are you going to do to try to change a particular situation as a middle manager or whatever. So what I encourage people to do, and you know, I've done a lot of leadership development training, and, and I, what I encourage folks to do is to try to figure out how to lead within your domain. So within your sphere of influence, how do you, what can you get done? And, and to have a really good understanding of how to lead within your domain and how to lead without power. And when I say that, how to lead without power, I'm talking about how to lead without positional power because we all have power. And so power is something you have to recognize you have and then know how to use it. But everybody has it. So you have to choose to, to embrace the power that you hold within any given situation. And so it takes, it, it requires you assessing that situation, 
and understanding, okay, what do I have the power to influence here and recognizing what you don't. So you don't put time and energy into something you, over which you have no control or power. You focus that energy and channel it into those things that you can do and you can change. And as you do that, you begin to expand your circle of influence and the impact that you can have just a little bit at a time. But it requires really being socially, I mean, um, socially conscious and aware and mm -hmm. certainly self-aware and learning how to build your own confidence in that space. I like, the, I like a lot that you brought out that you may not have positional power, but that if you become self-aware and become socially conscious, that gets us back to the data and then to the internal work that we have to do as leaders as we strive to have a greater social impact through our leadership. You might not be the CEO of the company. You might not be the hiring manager who can actualize DEI priorities or whatever that you feel like uh, should be done, but you do have power. This is what you're saying. And if you learn to use it and to move from discomfort to comfort or learning to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, then you can make a huge impact. Gwen, I really appreciate you sharing that. It's a, it's a good reminder for me and for all of us. Um, I, I wanna give you the final word as we wrap up our time together. Um, what would you leave folks with who are listening to this podcast and who want to make a change want to be social leaders, but um, they're not quite sure where they're going to begin. What would you like to leave us with? Wow. I think um, I'm really big on first understanding, like every, I think everybody uh, ha can make a contribution. And no matter how small or how large, it's important that you make that contribution. And, and so what I would encourage people to do is to really think about what or where's my passion? What am I most um, you know, concerned about or one that I want to change most? And then take deep dives into that, like find that one thing and then learn everything you can about it and, and, and show up and share your gifts and talents to make a difference. And don't be concerned about how big of a difference or how much money, it's not always about money, it's about mm -hmm. time, it's about what, what you can bring to improve a situation. All right. Well, if you're listening to the podcast and you want to become a social leader, go back and rewind because Gwen has dropped a whole bunch of great tips and tricks and ideas and some really important things. Um, I like what you said about dive deep, get into it, really understand that one issue that breaks your heart and then show up and do something. So Gwen, thank you for leaving us with that. And I want to make sure again, that everybody has your website. If they want to reach out to you, if they want to help fund the state of black Kansas city book and make a donation, they can do that online. You can help make sure that we have the quality and comprehensive data that we need to be able to continue the work of the urban league, especially right here in Kansas city, but all across the nation, go to ulkc.org. And also, if you want to follow Gwen, you can go to at Urban League KC if you're on, on Twitter and you can keep up to date with all they're doing. Again, uh, my guest today was Gwen Grant, president and CEO of the Urban League Kansas City. Gwen, thank you. It's been an honor to get to talk to you about leadership and about all that you do with the Urban League. And thank you for your advocacy for the community and all that you've given us in Kansas City. Father, thank you and thank Reconciliation Services for all that you do to serve Kansas City. We sincerely appreciate you and thank you so much for this opportunity.
Absolutely. Hang tight with me. I'll be right back to you. Hey, everyone who's listening on the show, I want to make sure that you know about something that is coming up that I'm super excited about. If you want to go further with the kind of things that Gwen was talking about today, if you want to have greater social impact in your leadership, wherever you are, Reconciliation Services is about to launch an e-course called Social Leader Essentials. It's coming up. It will be launched in the next month and you're going to want to stay tuned. So if you go to thesocialleader.org, thesocialleader.org, you'll be able to sign up, get on the mailing list, and be one of the first ones who knows when this product launches, when this course launches. Once again, thesocialleader.org. It's going to be an incredible course to give you the kickstart that you need to become someone who can have the kind of social impact that Gwen was talking about today, no matter where you work and what you do. And in addition to that, if you're someone who's looking for a job and you're looking to stand out from the sea of similarity with 33 million people looking to apply for the job that you want, you're going to want to take this e-course. Go to thesocialleader.org, answer a few quick questions, and one of our teams is going to reach out to you and make sure that you know when that launches. So once again, thank you for joining me today for episode nine of The Social Leader, where my guest was Gwendolyn Grant of the Urban League, Kansas City. Today was presented by Reconciliation Services and sponsored by Thelma's Kitchen. I look forward to seeing you every Tuesday at 1230 live on YouTube and on Facebook. Make sure to smash the like button, subscribe, hit the little bell so you know every time we go live and follow us at Reconciliation Services, both on YouTube and Facebook. And we look forward to speaking with you again next week. Until next time, learn to lead with greater social impact. Miles was a good man Always 